The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. It's our custom before we begin our study of God's Word to take a few moments of prayer. We begin with silent prayer. The reason is that Scripture teaches that once we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we have eternal salvation. Anything we do, any sin we commit does not destroy that salvation. We can never lose that eternal salvation. However, in time, as we sin, that breaches our fellowship with God. And so Scripture teaches that we are to regain fellowship through simple confession of sin, which means to admit or to acknowledge our sin to God. And when we do that, at that instant, we are forgiven of all sin. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. At that same time, God the Holy Spirit's sanctifying, growth-producing ministry in our life uh, gets kick-started again, and we begin to grow. God the Holy Spirit makes His Word clear to us until once again we sin and we're out of fellowship. So for some of us, the use of 1 John 1, 9 is more frequent than others. So we always begin as a way of teaching that principle to the congregation. It's not just some mechanistic thing, but a, a pedagogical tool for reminding everybody of the importance of confessing sin on a regular basis. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you that opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have your word to study because it is in the light of your word that we see light. Scripture says that your word is absolute truth, and Jesus prayed to you that we would be sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. Now, Father, as we study your word today, as we continue to probe into the depths of the meaning of this phrase we've encountered to be overcomers of the world, help us to come to a greater understanding of these principles and may God the Holy Spirit drive home to us how we can apply these things in each of our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. While you're turning to Matthew chapter 4, and we won't get there for a few minutes, I'm going to review a little bit of where we've come and where we're going and how we've gotten to where we are. We've been studying in Revelation, in the seven letters to the seven churches, these ecclesiastical evaluation reports. Each of these has, as part of it, sort of a, a, a motivational clause related to those who press on to spiritual maturity. This relates to the term overcomer. And so when we come to our last phrase of this nature in Revelation 3.21, we read, "...to him who overcomes..." I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So we've been exploring the, the, the phrase, the word, overcomer. Just what is an overcomer? 
Well, we see that the word, the basic word in the Greek is from the verb nikao, related to the noun nike, meaning victory or success, and relates to someone who is victorious over some obstacle, someone who conquers some enemy, someone who is a victor in an athletic contest. It means to overpower, to gain victory, or to win. And there is a comparison here of our overcoming with the overcoming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a problem in understanding this, a point of confusion that often uh, many Christians have as they read the Word, and it's somewhat related to a similar confusion. And that is, is an overcomer a special category classification of believer, or are all believers overcomers? You get into the same sort of confusion sometimes with people who think that all Christians are disciples, that that term disciple, a disciple of Christ, is equal to being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to being a special category of believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you misunderstand, misdefine, misinterpret these words, then you can really go down a wrong theological path. So we have to understand this. The problem is made clear for us in a verse that we hopefully will come back to before we end this morning. And that is 1 John 5, verse 4, which reads, For whatever or whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And at first blush, it appears that this verse is saying that anyone who is born of God is an overcomer. Now, being born of God is a term that relates to the phrase of regeneration or being born again. Every human being is born a sinner. Every human being is born in spiritual death. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says that we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. Even though we are physically alive, we are spiritually dead, separated from God. But the solution, as Paul states in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, is that, is that God has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be uh, identified with Christ as a result of our faith in Christ. So that when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant, God the Holy Spirit regenerates us, Titus 3.5. We are, become new creatures in Christ. We receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We're declared justified we receive the imputation of God's eternal life so that we can never lose that salvation which we now have by faith alone in Christ alone. That is what it means to be born of God. But overcoming relates to this object that we have here, overcoming the world. Salvation relates to paying this sin penalty, but overcoming the world is something that is different, though Related. It's this object of the world that we have been studying. Jesus makes a similar statement using the same verb, nikao, in John 16:33. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So what we see in these two passages is that overcoming has to do with the world. It's not dealing with uh, salvation, Christ's payment of the sin penalty on the cross. It's actually dealing with the believer's life after salvation. 
When Jesus makes this statement, he uses a perfect tense construction when he states that he has overcome the world, and that indicates completed action. That means that this night before he goes to the cross in John chapter 16, he has already accomplished this task of defeating the world. It is prior to the work that is done on the cross. So that brings us to to a study of this whole issue of the world system and what it is. Everybody looks great on the outside, but we all have a little problem called a sin nature. That's the internal enemy. The external enemy, the most serious enemy we have, is the devil. Scripture, we learn there are three enemies, the sin nature, the devil, and then this thing called the world system. Overcoming the world has to do with the world system. So in order to understand how we overcome the world, we have to understand something about this world system. So we've been studying that for the last several weeks. Last week I gave you a definition, or basically a summation. About th- I think last week I had four sen- uh, three sentences. This week I've added one. The characteristics of worldliness. This may seem like an extensive statement, but gosh, through the history of Christianity, people have just gotten off-center on this concept of worldliness. I don't know if you remember back... Uh, 50 years ago or 40 years ago, you would often find some uh, women in certain denominations and, and you would see them in, in the era of, uh, of mini skirts and, and uh, the, the 60s dress. You would still see these women wearing ankle-length dresses and no makeup and, and their hair would be up over their head. And, and that was, uh, these denominations saw that as a sign of not being worldly, that that for a woman to wear makeup or to dress in uh, the latest fashions, even though modestly, was still a sign of worldliness. Worldliness was defined really in terms of sin. It's a misunderstanding of the two, these two different words. Sin is anything that it violates the character, the righteousness, the standards of God, whereas worldliness has more to do with a way of thinking a system of thought. So I've tried to express that in this paragraph. The first sentence reads, The biblical concept of worldliness describes that collection of ideas, philosophies, religions, standards, values, purposes, and methods to achieve those ends, which characterize a culture or subculture. That can be anything from a family to the work environment to a nation or ethnic group. Here's the sentence I added. Its purpose is to suppress truth in unrighteousness. Its purpose, it's not just another worldview of many equal worldviews. It has an agenda, and that agenda is to suppress truth, to distance man from God, to create a world where God is not intrusive. Its purpose is to suppress truth in unrighteousness and redefine reality to avoid the righteous demands of the Creator God. As such, this worldview incorporates and is expressed in every aspect of a culture's views of the individual and social relationships, theories of knowledge and learning, expressions of reality in visual and performing arts, science, technology, literature, and law. When the Christian operates within this thought structure, even though it may overlap in many ways with a biblical worldview, it is still classified as worldliness. Part of the process of the Christian life is trying to ferret out all these ideas and philosophies and notions that we pick up over the years 
and exchange biblical truth for uh, human viewpoint truth. Worldliness shapes everything from metaphysics to morals, from epistemology to aesthetics. Nothing escapes a divine worldview versus a human worldview are all inclusive. So we went on to say that characteristics of worldliness reflects the thought of the creature Lucifer in his rebellion against God. Two aspects, arrogance and antagonism. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the temptations of Christ in Matthew 4 this morning because that's what underlies each of these temptations. That's what's expressed in these temptations is an arrogance of the creature and rebellion against the Creator and on the other hand an antagonism toward the truth of God's Word. That's Romans chapter 1, uh, 18 to 20, is that man is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness because he doesn't want to deal with the righteous demands of God. So in order to avoid God, what do you have to do? You have to go out and construct a whole different way of looking at life. That's got to include something about origins. That's why creation is such an important issue and Genesis 1 to 11 is such a battlefield. Is because if you're going to construct any sort of, uh, of understanding of life and where we came, it's going to include where we came from, what the origins are. So creation is important. Where do you get your values? Anytime you say, well, it shouldn't be that way or it ought to be this way or that's wrong, you are implying some sort of value system. Where do you get that value system? Well, it's going to come from either the Creator or from something within the creation, so it immediately sets up that sort of conflict. Anytime you say something is beautiful, something is glorious, you, you're, you're, you're implying some sort of absolute, some sort of sense of aesthetics. Well, is it beautiful because it just happened that way? Is it beautiful because it's just a cosmic accident? Or is there a God who is not only a holy, righteous, loving God, but a God who understands beauty and aesthetics and harmony. And he created things in this way. So you see, you have two opposing, contradictory ways of looking at at the world. So this is why worldliness is such an important battle in the believer's life. Romans 12.2 says that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renovating, renovation of our thought and thinking. So we're going to look at an example of this in the life of Jesus, how Jesus, it goes through these temptations uh, when he goes into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, undergoes these three temptations, what we're going to see is that even though the, the temptations are to sin, the rationale that uh, is embedded in these temptations is worldliness. And we watch to see how Jesus handles that because he is setting a pattern for us. He is giving us an example of how to deal with these things. So last time we began briefly, just introduced Matthew chapter 4, and this is the uh, first major attack on Jesus Christ in his humanity. In Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist has baptized him. 
in the Jordan. That is a unique baptism, one of eight different baptisms in the Bible. It is a unique baptism because it is a baptism that is inaugurating Jesus into his earthly ministry. When John the Baptist saw him, he recognized who he was and said that he was not worthy to even tie his or latch his sandals. He could not do anything. He was completely unworthy. Nevertheless, Jesus came to him to be baptized, and at that baptism there was an objective uh, validation of Jesus in terms of who he was in his ministry by God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The Father's voice was heard from heaven. If you had had an Olympus digital wave recorder, uh, digital recorder with you, you could have recorded the voice of God. If you had had your uh, uh, DVD recorder with you, you could have taken a picture of this dove that descended on heaven, I mean, on Jesus from heaven, who was the Holy Spirit. This was objective reality. This wasn't something people uh, just had a, a sort of a mass hallucination about. This was something that happened in real space-time history as God is validating His Son for His ministry on the earth. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, we see this episode of Jesus going into the wilderness. Now, there's a comparison and contrast here between Israel in the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ in His ministry. And I want to make sure you see this distinction In the Old Testament, we have Israel's historical example as they're coming out of Egypt. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They crossed the Red Sea, which is a picture of identification with Moses. 1 Corinthians 10.3 says that's a baptism into Moses. So that is a picture of something. We call that a type. It foreshadows something in Jesus Christ. And so what it foreshadows is said to be the antitype. So the type foreshadows or pictures the antitype. So there are uh, five points of comparison. First of all, the Jews in the wilderness go into the wilderness following their baptism into Moses, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. This is the beginning of their, uh, their history. Jesus goes into the wilderness following his baptism with John the Baptist, according to Matthew chapter 3. This is the inauguration into this new ministry. Second, the events that take place in Israel's life are in the wilderness as they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They both go into the wilderness. The Jews in the Old Testament are in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and forty nights. Both are tested with hunger. The Israelites have left Egypt and left all the wonderful food of Egypt, and they are uh, looking for food and water in the desert. Uh, Jesus goes voluntarily into the desert following the Holy Spirit, and he is on a voluntary fast for forty days and forty nights. Israel failed because they failed to trust God's word and they failed to rely upon his promises. However, the Lord Jesus Christ succeeds in trusting in God's word and trusting in God's promises. In fact, the order of the tests as they're recorded in Matthew is to reflect the order 
of the testing in those early days in Israel's history. First, they were tested with relation to food. And that was the test related to manna in Exodus chapter 16. Then there was the grumbling related to the water. And that was dealt with by the provision of water out of the rock at Massa in Exodus chapter 17. Massa is a Hebrew word meaning contention. And then there was the issue of the acquisition or conquest of the land where the Jews were told to go into the land and to conquer the Canaanites and to establish their king, the kingdom of God in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 33. So this is the same order that we have in the testing in Matthew chapter 4. Okay, let's look at the verse. Matthew 4, verse 3 says, Now when the tempter came to him... Now the tempter is Satan of old, also known as the devil, as defined in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. This word to be tested or tempted is the Greek word perazo, which means to examine, to evaluate, or to test something. It is often used within a legal context, to try something. That's where we get our English word and trial, is to evaluate or to test something. I pointed out last time that even this word to lead up, even though it has a common meaning of leading someone somewhere, bringing them somewhere, taking something from here to there, it also has the idea of Uh, leading someone into a courtroom. This is the second meaning. It is used in legal literature for bringing someone into court for a judicial process. So what we see here is that there's a a, a level of a, a, a metaphor here related to a legal process. Jesus is presenting evidence about who he is and his qualifications to complete his mission as our Savior. It is related specifically to something that goes beyond uh, the natural history, and that is into the supernatural realms of the angels. We know that Satan, who was originally referred to as Lucifer, the highest, greatest, most intelligent, most beautiful of all of the angels, led a revolt against God at some time in eternity past that human history is related to that angelic revolt, and it is through human history that God is demonstrating certain truths related to those challenges that Satan has brought against God. These, these things are just indicated by the type of vocabulary that is used in this passage. So what we read here is that the devil comes along to him and makes him an offer. He says, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. After all, if you're the Son of God, you are God. You're omnipotent. There's nothing you can't do. You can easily turn these stones into bread. You haven't had anything to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. You're starving to death. Now, your appetite's really kicked in. If you ever go on a lengthy fast, you can go on a fast for 40 days. The first uh, couple of days may be a little rugged. But by the end of the second day, your appetite will disappear. And then if you continue without food for another 38 days, then about the 39th or 40th day, your appetite will start kicking in again 
with a vengeance because now your life can be threatened. But this going th- uh, 40 days without food, is it may seem to you like that's a miracle. It may seem to you as if that had to be done in his deity, but trust me, it can be done in his humanity and was done in his humanity. But now he is in a place of vulnerability, so he is being tested in that specific area of vulnerability. So the devil says, if, and in the Greek this is the kind of construction that indicates if, and you are the Son of God. Satan knows who he is. He has no question about who Jesus is. He knows he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And he is saying, if and you are the Son of God, and because you are the Son of God, you can command these stones to become bread. Now look how Jesus answers that. Verse 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now this is a quote from an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So what I would like for you to do is to hold your place here in Matthew 4 and turn with me to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a sermon. It is Moses' last sermon to the uh, Jews before he goes to, to um, before he is going to die. Matthew chapter 8, he is reminding them of past failure and divine provision. So, we read in verse 3, So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but, by, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So there's a test related to the Jews that he's referring to. It's a test related to hunger and God's grace provision of food, the manna, this special uh, bread that God provided that would miraculously appear on the ground every morning like dew, had a wonderful flavor. I often compare it to a nice, hot, fresh Shipley donut. I don't know what it actually tasted like, but every semester when I teach Deuteronomy and... and, uh, at, down at the College of Biblical Studies, somebody always brings me donuts after that. I quit saying that. I don't need the donuts. Um, but it was, it was sweet, wonderful, and it provided all the nourishment you could ever hope for. It was packed with vitamins, packed with minerals, packed with everything that he got. It gave a perfect provision for their sustenance. The only thing was that after a month, you had manna for morning, noon, and night, except for the Sabbath. Next month you had manna, morning, noon, and night. Next month. You can imagine that after a while this manna ration would get a little old, and it did, and that presented another, another uh, test case for, for Israel. But we get ahead of ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's look at the context. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1, Moses reminds them that the commandments that God gives them in the Mosaic Law aren't designed to restrict their life. They're not some meanie God who's just trying to bully them and give them a lot of things they can't do, but that they were the path to life. The law, as Paul says in Romans 7, is good and righteous and holy. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 8.1 says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. So these commandments are given for a purpose that they can have life and enjoy the blessings that God has given them. In verse 2, we have a reminder of past failures to trust God. And Moses says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Notice, God led the Israelites in the wilderness. And in Matthew 4, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. That's something else you can add to that comparison chart. He led you into the wilderness for a purpose, to humble you and to test you to know what was in your hearts, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So there is an evaluation that is taking place when we go through various tests. And the purpose was to teach them humility. Now, what exactly is humility? See, that's something our culture has a hard time understanding. We tend to caricature it as somebody who's just a doormat, somebody who gets rolled over in life, someone who's always giving somebody else uh, the opportunity to do what they want to do, and they're just sort of becoming a wallflower. But that is not the biblical concept of humility. The most humble person in the Bible, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, was Moses. And Moses was the leader of about two million rebellious Jews in the wilderness. Now, that's not somebody who's just going to get rolled over and stomped on and become a doormat. Or they wouldn't have gotten anywhere. He wouldn't have lasted any time at all. Humility in the Scripture is orientation to authority. It's understanding who your authority is and being obedient to that authority. That's the same definition you get in the New Testament in Philippians 2 when we see that Jesus humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Humility is related to obedience to authority, submission to those authorities that have been placed over you. Humility is a prerequisite for teachability. If you're going to learn anything, you have to be humble. You can't approach something and say, well, I already know all the answers. I already know how everything is done, so I'm just going to go through the motions. That's arrogance, and you won't learn anything. And humility is the opposite of what? Arrogance. Remember, the two aspects to, to worldliness is arrogance and antagonism. So this first test is related to dealing with that aspect of worldliness known as arrogance to teach them humility. So they're put in a position of vulnerability out in the desert in order to be evaluated, in order to be tested. It was an opportunity for them to be dependent upon God for everything, not just for salvation, not just for spiritual life. See, a lot of people think about that. God is great. The Bible is great for learning about salvation and learning about the spiritual life. But, you know, when it comes to how I spend my money, when it comes to how I take care of my house, when it comes to how I exercise my leadership in the family as a father, as a husband, when it comes to how I conduct myself in teaching and the methodology that I use in teaching, well, you know, I learned that elsewhere, right? That's modern man's conception. But see, what the Bible says is that if God addresses anything, then God addresses everything because God created everything. Therefore, God not only has the right and not only does address 
the spiritual issues related to salvation because that's the greatest issue. God also says something about everything else in life because he is the one who created all things. So he's going to take the Jews into the wilderness. They will be tested by hunger in order to teach them dependence upon God and upon his word. They had to learn to think as God thinks. God is going to take them into the land to conquer the Canaanites, but if they're going to be successful in the land, then they're going to have to learn to think as God thinks, and if they are going to conquer the enemies in the land, then they are going to have to operate in dependence upon God. By learning to depend upon God for their day-to-day sustenance, for their day-to-day nourishment for 40 years, they would be able to understand how God could sustain them spiritually and would take care of them in every test they would face in the future. Now, I believe that if they had passed these initial tests when they came out of the land of Canaan all the way up to Kadesh Barnea, if they had passed those tests, then they would have had only about a year or two's worth of testing with manna rations. But because they failed to pass those tests, because they failed to trust God, they were on manna rations for 40 years instead of maybe two years. Same things happens to us. If we fail to learn the lessons and pass the tests, then it seems like we just keep going through the same tests over and over again. So the first challenge, the first test that Satan has is to challenge the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his deity and say, look, you're hungry, you can solve the problem, just use your deity to solve your personal problems. And Jesus answered and said, what's more important is that I'm oriented to the word of God that my thinking is informed and oriented to the Word of God, and that tells me that I have to be subordinate to the authority of God. So what's embedded in this temptation is, first of all, an appeal to arrogance or an attempt to make him operate independently of God, which is what arrogance is, and secondly, to do that which is antagonistic or hostile to the plan of God. But Jesus passes on both counts. He orients himself to the authority of God. He is on a mission. That mission is to trust in God to provide his needs, not to act independently of the Father's plan. And secondly, it is to not be hostile to what God has revealed in his word. So he emphasizes the priority of the word of God, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, there's an important principle there, and that is that the issue of nourishment for each of us in our spiritual life is the Word of God. It's not about our jobs. It's not about our careers. It's ultimately not about our families. It is about our day-to-day nourishment from the Word of God. If you think you need three meals a day in order to keep body and soul together, how many times do you need to be nourished by the Word of God to be reminded of the eternal principles of God's Word. If you think once a week will do it, then I think you're sadly mistaken. If you think once a week is enough to counter the 24-7 messages of the cosmic system, the world system around us, then you'll never get anywhere in your Christian life. We have to be reminded of God's Word over and over and over again. On a day-to-day basis, we need to be reading the Word. We need to be memorizing the Word of God, making it a part of our life. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. 
We have to listen to someone teaching the Word because it is through the medium of the pastor and the pastoral teaching that God has determined that we are reminded of the principles of God's Word and that we can grow by that. So the principle here is that we need to make the study of God's Word and the application of it uh, the highest priority in our life. Second temptation comes along in Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. There we read, Then the devil took him up into the holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem. Set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If, first class condition again, If and you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Ah, notice. Now the devil is going to quote Scripture. Didn't know that, did you? That the devil tempts through the misapplication and misinterpretation of Scripture. He knows the, he probably knows the Bible better than you do. I know he knows it better than I do. He said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now this term, the pinnacle of the temple, is understood to be the from the... Um, not the internal temple area. The word here is heros, uh, uh, which refers to the entire temple complex. And so this would have related to Solomon's portico, which was in the uh, southeast corner of the temple complex. And here we don't, have, of course, have a picture of the temple as it existed in Jesus' day, but this is in the background. You see the uh, temple mount and the wall that was built by uh, Suleiman the Magnificent in the 17th century. And there we can get some idea by the line that I have drawn there how far it would have been. It doesn't look that way today because the topography is a little different because of the roads they've built and other things. But it was approximately 450 feet from the upper corner of Solomon's portico uh, down to the ground. We're told by the historian Hegesippus that James, the Lord's brother, was martyred this same way by throwing him from the pinnacle of the temple down into the Kidron Valley. So this is the uh, testing. This is the temptation. Now, the thrust of this temptation is that what Satan is telling the Lord is that since you are the Son of God, since you're God, you're an authority, you just do whatever you want to. The angels, are, they have to take care of you. Just go out and throw yourself off the corner of the, the table. You can do whatever you wish because you're God. So just do it. And they are bound by their, uh, their role to take care of you. And then he quotes from Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But actually it is a misquote from Psalm 91, 11, and 12. So since you're probably still in Deuteronomy 8, just turn back towards Matthew to... Uh, Psalms, which is in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 91. Now, Psalm 91 is a psalm of trust. A psalm of trust. Begins, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. It is a psalm that reminds us that God is the one who protects us. He is the one who is our Refuge, He is the one who is our strength. Psalm 91.2 is a great verse to memorize. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge 
and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Now, as we skip down a little further into the psalm itself, let's pick up in verse 9. Verse 9 we read, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. In other words, as a believer, when you make the Lord your refuge, your dwelling place, then He protects us. He is the one who watches over us. And then there's an explanation given in verses 11 and 12. This is where we find the quote that the, that the devil uses against Jesus. But notice we have the full quote here. The, the section left out is the line in yellow. For he shall give his angels charge over you. Now, Satan left out the next line. To keep you in all your ways. Now, that's crucial because this phrase, to keep you in all your ways, was just an idiom for saying as you go about the normal processes of life, he will watch over you. Is he going to watch over you if you go blindfolded and try to run across Beltway 8? No, because you're being stupid and foolish and you're going to probably get hit. That's not the normal course of life. Throwing yourself off of a cliff that's 450 feet high is not the normal uh, course of life. And that's, that's the issue here is the person who is oriented to God's authority and walking with him will be protected by God. But Satan leaves that out and thus he skews the interpretation of the passage. Psalm 91.12 goes on to say, In their hands, that is the hands of the angels, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So the point is that uh, he is using this to try to twist God's word to say that whatever you do, you know, just because you're God, just do it. Angels take care of you. But Jesus responds by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16, and he says, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, I want you to notice something else. How has Jesus responded to each of these temptations? First temptation focuses on the, the dual aspects of, of worldliness, arrogance and antagonism. How does Jesus respond? By the accurate quoting and use of the Word of God. See, if you quote it inaccurately, it doesn't work. He is using it correctly. It shows us, in fact, this is a great example. I've taught this before, that in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, when it talks about the armor of God that we have in, in um, spiritual warfare, there we're described as having the sword of the Spirit. And many people think of that sword as, the, as, a, as an aggressive, offensive weapon. But actually, it's not the rompia, it's the machaira, which was used not only offensively, but it was a, a defensive weapon that was used in a counterattack. And it says there we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and it's not the Greek word logos of God, it's the word rhema. It's the spoken or utilized Word of God that is the sword of the Spirit. And Jesus gives us a perfect example here of how you use the Word. It is that you understand its true and accurate meaning, and you apply it specifically to the situation. So Jesus says here that, it's not his job to do whatever he wants to do, but again, he needs to be oriented uh, to the authority of God. He needs to be thinking in obedience to God. Uh, Satan is trying to get us to be hostile to God. His very twisting of the scripture here indicates that hostility to God's word, uh, which leads to mishandling or distorting 
God's thinking. That's the same kind of thing that Satan did in the Garden of Eden when he went to Eve. He said, has God not said? And just by asking this question the way he did, he got her to thinking, questioning, and doubting the veracity of what God had said and his motivations. So it's very important not to be caught up into these traps, and Jesus does not get caught up into the trap of responding directly. He just goes direct goes to the underlying issue, which is testing the Lord. So the, again, we see that both arrogance and antagonism are present in the temptation of Satan. He goes back to the quote here from Deuteronomy 6.16 relates to event that occurred in at a place called Massa in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. This was the second major test that the Jews had to deal with coming out of Egypt. They had to deal with the test of food, and then they had to deal with the test of water. And so they uh, approached this with uh, grumbling and complaining. Verse 1, we read, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin. That's not sin there. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses. The Hebrew word, the root for contended, is related to Massa. That's why they call the place uh, Massa. The people contended with Moses. They started griping and complaining, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses says, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? See, Moses understood that the real issue was they were doubting God's ability to pro- provide for them in the wilderness. And so the people complained against Moses, and they said, why have you brought, you've just brought us out here out of Egypt to die, in verse 3. And then Moses goes to the Lord and says, what shall I do to this people? And so God gives him instructions, tells him to go to the rock. Now, this isn't just some little rock. Uh, like the size of this pot over here. This was an enormous rock wall of a mountain. We're talking two million people here. They don't get fed by some little trickle of water coming out of a water fountain. When he hit that rock, it poured forth thousands and thousands of gallons of water. A river opened up in the desert, virtually, in order to provide enough water for two to three million people and to sustain them in, in the desert. I want you to get a good visual image of that because that is a tremendous miracle. Of course, it does, its impact doesn't last long. See, miracles aren't enough to sustain people in their spiritual life. The Jews in the Old Testament saw miracle after miracle. It didn't sustain them. Jews at the time of Christ saw him perform miracles and miracles, and they didn't believe he was saved. See, you can't base your Christian life on the emotions and the stimulation from miracles and the supernatural. It's got to be based on the Word of God. That's why these tests is, are you really going to trust in God despite the experiences? Well, the problem with the Jews is in the Old Testament, Exodus 17, is they were still operating on human viewpoint concepts of God. So they're arrogant and they're hostile to God. They're complaining against God. Then we come to the third temptation, verse 8. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain. This is probably metaphorical. We're not sure where it would be. Some place where he could give this vision, as it were, to spread out this view of the kingdoms of the world. 
And what the devil is doing is offering him the glory of world rulership without having to go through the path, the suffering of the cross. So he's saying, I can give you what the Father is going to give you, but I'll give it to you without the pain and the suffering and having to uh, bear the burden of sin on the cross. And so he says, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And the Lord again quotes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy must be an important book. Three times he responds, quoting from Deuteronomy, and he says to Satan, Away from with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. This is our quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. So, this gives us a methodology for understanding how to deal with worldliness. Worldliness we spot because it leads us to be independent of God and ultimately to be hostile to His Word. Now that hostility may take, may have the veneer of, of neutrality. Well, I'm just too busy. You know, work has so many obligations. I'm too tired when I come home in the afternoon. I have family responsibilities. I have other responsibilities. I'm just too busy to get to Bible class three times a week, Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night. How fanatic is that? But the issue is, if we're going to let the Word of God truly transform our thinking, then we have to go through through a transformational process where we learn the Word of God. We know the Word of God. It, it, It operates at many different levels. But if we're not in a constant battle to learn the Word and make it a primary aspect of our thinking, then what happens is we wake up and the world system just steamrolls right over us and we don't even see it coming because it's only the objectivity from the Word of God that gives us the ability to uh, discern and distinguish what the issues really are and where the absolutes really are. Now next time we'll come back, wrap up our study on Overcomer and go forward into uh, our completion of the seven letters to the seven churches with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see how our Lord Jesus Christ sets the pattern and the example for us in the way he handles the assaults of, the, of Satan, the world system, the rationale to operate independently of you and in hostility to you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. The Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the penalty for sin is eternal condemnation. Nevertheless, Scripture says that God loved us in such a way that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The issue is not what you've done. The issue is what Christ did. The issue is not how you failed. The issue is how Christ succeeded on the cross in paying the penalty for your sins. The issue is not ritual. It's not belonging to a church. It's not getting religion. The issue is simply believing that Jesus Christ died as your Savior and that you're trusting solely and only upon Him for your salvation. Now, Father, we pray that as we go about our day, we may not forget these lessons, but we may be constantly reminded that your word is to be the priority of our thinking. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.